Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. If you anybody would like to comment or join in the discussion on this episode, check out the episode tweet on Twitter at Jim underscore Rutt. I look forward to seeing you there. Today's guest is Michael Garfield. Michael has a quite interesting podcast called Future Fossils. I appeared on his show in episode 181. I think we talked and argued a bit about Game B a little bit or something like that, as I vaguely recall. And until very recently, Michael was the producer and host of the Santa Fe Institute's podcast, Complexity, which is a really great podcast with a lot of interesting guests, many of them ones who have appeared on the Jim Rutt Show, but Michael takes a different perspective. And I think if, for those of you who are, you know, see some overlap, check out what he, the work that he's done. It's really quite good. In addition to being a podcaster, he's a freelance writer and editor. And he's also a not shabby musician and a visual artist. He's a talented motherfucker, right? <laughs> Thanks, Jim. And I mean, his stuff is really interesting. Worth, worth checking out. And he's currently, and by the way, you can find a link to his stuff on the episode page, as usual, at jimrudshow.com. And he's currently working on a book about the intersection of entertainment, media, technology, and complexity. I'm certainly looking forward to it, and I'll certainly buy a copy, and we'll have you back on the show when it comes out. Welcome. Thanks, Jim. And yeah, you know, it's funny, I, as we were saying before the call, I really, you know, I worry that I've never made entirely sensible decisions in my life and, you know, leaving SFI to pursue more impactful work, you know, including this, this consummation and synthesis of everything I've, I've learned there in other media projects that, you know, this is also like during the collapse of the publishing industry. And, and also at this time when everything on you know the six month horizon and forward seems like it's up for grabs with the the accelerating pace of language models and their suffusion into society. So like I honestly don't know if waiting for this book to be finished before I share it with the world is is the right idea. So I'm workshopping everything right now with my Substack readers and you know involving them in in this the manuscript research and, and drafting. And I find that to be a much more appropriate way to pursue this project than to simply, you know, work on this in, in secrecy as a, you know, I think the, everything now it's, it's about teams, right? It's human AI teams, human, human teams. And, and so I welcome people's participation and, and, and contributions to this project. And I've already had a lot of success with future fossils listeners in helping me think through this this synthesis. So anyway. Yeah, there's a lot of that opportunity out there right now to, to do collaboration in ways that we haven't fully thought about before. And as you mentioned, not just with humans, but also with things like LLMs. It's really, this is an exciting time. You know, I really feel excited about technology again. I haven't, you know, I, I believe this LLM thing and the things that will come down from it, be built from it will be 
as fruitful, at least, as the last really big thing, which I would suggest was the PC in 1977 or 78 or thereabouts. Now, we talk about the internet, but the internet kind of follows from PCs. We talk about smartphones, and they essentially are just a miniature little PC hooked up to a network. But this is a whole new space. It's really, really quite interesting. So I look forward to see how this collaboration of yours goes forward. Do you intend to put LLMs in the loop to some degree? Uh, to some degree, I've already been drafting the cover of the book in Midjourney and and the generative image fills from Photoshop, you know, and I'm, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm going to be talking on Future Fossils to a couple from Copenhagen that are working on a project called Leica, which allows you to create bespoke, customized language models that learn your particular writing style. And so I'm, I'm I, I, at the same time, you know, I, I call me old fashioned, but I still haven't found a lot of personal utility in writing with chat GPT, except to, to see what kind of interesting, like it's terrible at sonnets, for instance, it cannot do uh, iambic pentameter to save its life. And so, you know, I, I, I value, you know, having some agency in this and then, you know, just, just to double down on this particular thing, you know, I think that the, way that these tools are being presented as a productivity amplifier is a part of the problem that I see us working through now, which has to do with a very SFI notion that came up on complexity a lot, which is information scaling and the way that the super exponential production of information is causing something that you and I talk about a lot, as well as many other people in the, the, the so-called liminal web in which both of us have been implicated, which is the epistemic crisis of, you know, how do we make sense of all of this additional information? And so this is where I see one of the core themes of the book really coming to the fore, which is that, you know, I'm, I, I grew up a super fan of Michael Crichton's work and of Jurassic Park in particular. And, you know, I studied paleontology with the book and films principal paleontological consultant, Robert Bacher as a child. And left paleontology when I discovered the work that David Krakauer did with Martin Nowak on the error catastrophe and on the evolution of syntactic language. And I realized in my senior year of college that that research was generalizable to an understanding of major evolutionary transitions as a whole. And so, you know, these are these questions about, you know, the complexity that's produced endogenously through recombinant relationships between agents in a, in a complex system, and then how it pushes the sense-making processes of various, you know, social systems as, you know, as simple as, you know, chemicals relating to one another in a prebiotic soup or, or the origins of multicellularity, et cetera, to create new levels of individuality. And, you know, this is, so this is the driving story to make sense of the origins of, of you know, complex society and the origins of what we're calling the technocene or the technosphere. And so this is what Crichton was pointing to in the problems that the engineers and architects of Jurassic Park were facing, which was that the complexities of the systems that they were trying to control outpaced their abilities to make sense of them and to and to effectively control them. And so I see Jurassic Park as, as a tale that's not really about dinosaurs in particular, but is about 
what you know Kevin Kelly, after spending time at SFI, pointed to in his book Out of Control in in the '90s, which is the the way that our technologies have become living systems in their own right, and therefore exceed our abilities to to model them adequately, such as you know we can we can remain at the top of the the so called food chain in in you know the postmodern world. Yeah, that's of course hugely interesting. And you know, how do we deal with the level of both complicatedness and complexity that we have created, both advertently and inadvertently? And it's a it's a huge question. You know, is human cognitive capacity up for the game? You know, the early returns don't seem too promising. No, and of course, you know, something that I talked about with with David in in the last episode of Complexity, which should be appearing soon, is that. You know everything that you're talking about, but the, you know the PC revolution, the the development of the internet, and so on, leads us deeper into what a philosopher Timothy Morton called the hyperobject, which is again to point to Kevin Kelly and uh, who I just interviewed for the third time for Future Fossils and had a fabulous discussion with. You know, Kevin talked in What Technology Wants about how this appearance of the ephemeralization of technology that the phones are getting sm- the interface is getting smaller and and less visible, occludes the fact that all of this stuff is running on an ever greater and, and, and more pervasive information architecture such that, you know, it looks like you're dealing with, you know, the, instead of a room-sized PC like our buddy Bruce Damer has in his Digibarn Museum, you know, he's got the first PC, which is, you know, desk-sized. And now you're dealing with something that, you know, that it fits in our pockets and pretty soon will disappear even further. But it's actually just the tip of the iceberg of this enormous thing. And that all of us are actually connected with this. And I don't know if you've had Gordon Brander on your show yet, but... No. Yeah, Gordon subconscious.substack.com. He's working on tools for thought. I'm talking with him and Kevin Awoki later today on the Green Pill podcast. But like Gordon and I have had a lot of interesting conversations about how the response to this problem of you know an increasingly opaque information processing architecture that you know in which each of us are embedded like coral polyps within you know the colonial organism of a coral is you know it means that you know we can't really think of ourselves as as discrete modern individuals in the way that we were inclined to you know 300 years ago that we're we are participating in a massive sort of distributed computation and and we're all sort of joined at the hip and the brain by these things. And so that it really, again, you know, just a nod to David Krakauer and, you know, the work that he did recently with Melanie Mitchell on do language models demonstrate understanding? You know, David has made the point several times through his career that the that culture in the modern world is defined by collective learning increasingly outpacing individual learning. And so even as we get better at that new meta-individual layer of intelligence at understanding and interacting with things, as individuals, the world that we become that that we're relating to is becoming more and more opaque. And so there's a there's a fundamental trade-off between our own ability to understand it and to engage with these, you know, these black box predictive algorithms. And so, you know, it's, it, I, I think you look at, you know, the work of, you know, weirdo visionaries like Terrence McKenna, 
and you know how he built on Marshall McLuhan's work to say that you know the the information age is reviving an archaic way of relating to the world, a pre-modern sort of indigenous, animistic, polytheistic, cosmic view in which, you know, we live in a, a, you know, a kind of sentient ecosystem of, you know, everything being animate, everything being that, you know, like the, we live in a jungle of our own making. And so, you know, that, that it's, it's going to change the way that, that we, engage with all of these things. And I think that, you know, ultimately it just puts us back in a very, I think epistemic humility is basically the, the going to be the real core of what emerges here. You know, we're going to have to accept that, that we can't think this through on our own and that we need the, the cognitive ecosystem that involves non-human animal intelligences and, you know, like slime molds and, language models and all of these things. And we're going to have to think through this stuff together with all of these non-human intelligences. Yeah. And we also have to, I think we're, you know, you and I both have some interest is, is there a way to, well, we know there are some ways, but are there better and more scalable and less corruptible and capturable ways to create collective intelligences that actually can work on these problems? You know, when I say we already have collective intelligences, every business is a collective intelligence. It's a, you know, fairly archaically designed one in many, most cases, but it is, it is smarter than any one of its components typically. But can we do a bigger net mind of, of us to help steer this increasingly difficult ship of civilization that we have? And I will say so, so far it's unclear. You know, you think about something like Twitter, kind of amazing that, you know, fully emergent networks are formed. You know, Twitter is kind of almost the most pure case in that you can connect, you can follow anybody, anybody can follow you, no limits on numbers, et cetera. But of course, we're all mediated by that black box in the middle, though maybe not quite so black anymore since they published the code, but a gray box at least that is very substantially modulating the nature of this network. And, you know, can we, you know, and, you know, Twitter, it's sort of interesting, but, it, you know, I've certainly connected to some interesting folks, but at the end of the day, it isn't very satisfying. Nothing much ever happens on Twitter other than blah, blah, blah. And in fact, I'm very much looking forward to my annual six-month social media sabbatical. You know, some days I feel like Frodo in the last few miles to the ring of fire waiting for July 1st, right, to the to Mount Doom. It's just like, oh, uh, what a what a just blah, Twitter can be, but it at least points towards something. But we, need, you know, we're going to need some new thinking. And you know, I've been talking to a number of people about this. And some of them had uh, Monica Anderson on the show, and some other folks I've been talking to offline. And it seems like some a new topology might be necessary. I'd love to get your thoughts on this because if you're thinking about the intersection of entertainment, media, technology, and complexity, your thoughts could be bang on. And that is that, you know, you, and then let's add in the accelerator, which is the LLMs and the sea of sludge that they're producing. <laughs> we could already see it, right? I could already see the degrading quality. Facebook has lost control. Facebook is just totally useless shit now, close to. Twitter, maybe they're doing a little bit better. And it reminds me of the spam attacks in the mid-90s where email almost went down when there was a, a clever algorithm developed that was just barely good enough to keep ahead of the sea and the algorithms have stayed better. So email remains useful, somewhat surprisingly, all these years later. But anyway, back to this, you know, the sea of sludge and just too much, too much and the black boxes. 
number of us are hypothesizing that the the basic model of connectivity will change and that what we really want is each of us to have a very smart information agent around us that interfaces with these various platforms, including our email, including our text messages, but also including Twitter, if that's what you want, and Facebook and Reddit or you know your subreddits and all this sort of thing. And more importantly, though, with each other, each other's agents, right? And for instance, that your, your info agent, I think of it as a sphere, essentially, probably an idea I got from Monica Anderson. She calls hers Bubble City, right? Mm. And your sphere could have an exhaust coming out of it, which is your curations and what you're interested in. People could subscribe to your exhaust and have uh, their info agents process you know, the transactions that you choose to publish out your exhaust. Maybe you charge a dollar a month for it, something like that. And then there are people set themselves up as second order curators who offer a curation service where they actually work. Let's say somebody follows you know, say evolutionary theory and, you know, reads the papers and makes brief comments and gives thumbs up, thumbs down on them. And that feed can be plugged into your info agent and that, and that curation can exist outside of any of the existing platforms. And then potentially a new virtual platform emerges from these connectivities. And when you want to post a reply to something, it goes to wherever it's supposed to go, right? Oh, I want to reply to this tweet. Okay, boom. It just goes off to Twitter. You don't have to deal with Twitter at all. Your info agent takes care of it for you. Oh, yeah. And then, and then I, and here's the top of the food chain thing for me, I feel like, is I would love to have a slider that says, I only want to look at 10 things a day, period. Info agent, you figure out the 10 things in collaboration with all my friends who I've hooked you up to. And don't give me more than 10 things, God damn it, because it wastes my time, <laughs> right? And anyway, I, you know, I'm starting to smell that this could be a quite – remarkable change in the whole topology of how all this stuff works. What do you think of that? Absolutely. And, you know, I just, to, to just make the stakes of all of this really, really explicit for your listeners, I want to point to one of my favorite episodes of Complexity, which was with Rajiv Sethi back in episode seven, where, we, you know, we were talking about the work that he did with Brennan Flaherty on the you know, criminal justice and stereotyping and police violence. And, you know, one of the things that he said was that, you know, all of us have to create these, these compressed encodings based on our life experience such that we're not constantly testing our environment as though we're interacting with it for the first time. Like the, the amount of computational resources required to test a chair before you sit in it every single time because you haven't developed a concept of chairs you're not sure if it's actually going to, you know, you have to assume that on average, that thing is going to support your weight or we would never get anywhere. And, you know, I'm anyone who has, you know, had a psychedelic experience knows that the way that, that one of the, the characteristics of, of psychedelia it, you know, points to this is, is that it's just enormously costly to sit there and try to figure out like how to hold a glass of water and like, you know, this is ridiculous. And you know, it's, it's, an, it's enormously inefficient. And, and yet, on the other end of it, we end up with these situations where people have developed these, these horrible stereotypes, you know, racist, sexist, ageist stereotypes that, you know, in a moment of crisis, you know, in a moment where we're having to make flash decisions on the spot, you encounter someone in a dark alley, that we tend to lean on these these uh, stereotyped models of one another. And what came up in the conversation with Rajiv was how the pace of interactions required of us to inter to engage with one another online in social media, where we have very little information about strangers 
results in these these encounters where people are assuming the worst about one another and they're not getting the time to break bread and and get to know each other as individuals. And so this is why social media is such a trash fire. You know, it, like in one in my opinion and one of, you know one of the reasons is that the scale and pace of of interactions required to participate in the global economy is such that it is inherently dehumanizing and alienating. And so, the, you know, the question of, you know, something that I, I, I appreciate about, you know, this return to, you know, uh, Dunbar and sub Dunbar levels of human interaction in, in the Game B discourse is it's, you know, it really is about, you know, how do we get back to this kind of thinking? And so, you know, Gordon, again, Gordon Brander, you know, he, he was part of the SFI Applied Complexity Network back when he was at Google with Robinson Eaton and Alex Komarowski and Casey Climes. And, you know, Robinson went on to work at Discord. And I think Discord's a really good example of people fleeing this enormous open environment of the original Web 2.0 social media platforms to something that's a lot more narrow in its focus and a lot more like the campfire, you know, where everyone's kind of gathered around these specific affinity groups. And when I had Burning Man's resident philosopher, Caveat Magister on Future Fossils for the first time, we talked about this with respect to, you know, Burning Man getting shut down due to COVID and it really amplifying the interest that people had in regional burns and like backyard gatherings and taking the ethos of cultural self-determination from Burning Man into a more human scale environment. And I think that, you know, uh, one of my favorite historians William Merwin Thompson talked a lot about the, you know, the way that the technocratic paradigm of, you know, the early information age would undermine itself and lead to lead to a collapse that would bring back a village scale in human interaction. You know, and he looked at the the coming planetary dark age, quote unquote, is actually a very positive development where people can get back to this stuff. So Gordon's work, I think, is a perfect example of the kind of technological platform that you're talking about. It's based on, you know, in large part, the work of Gordon Bell of Microsoft Research, who was trying to create that sort of external brain that he was able to train on all of his his document scanned documentation and personal correspondence, email history, paperwork, and so on. And, you know, my, the first time that I encountered anything like this was in the work of, you know, I think you and I have both read Charles Strauss's novel, Accelerando, yep. the protagonist of that, of that book, which I think came out in like 2005. I mean, just an extraordinary prophetic work. I've tried to get Charles on a podcast several times, but he's just like burned out talking about the singularity. Doesn't want to go there anymore. But like, that his protagonist, Manfred Max, had exactly the kind of system that you're talking about. It was called a, a metacortex, where you know it was it was helping scan terabytes of news information for him every day, serving it up, synthesizing it for him, and then allowing him to not only identify interesting new ideas have automatically patent filed, but then find the people that would benefit from those ideas the most and then issue them patents for free. So he, he, he made his entire living in this, in this story as a so-called venture altruist who didn't make a dime, but just benefited from this sort of non-rivalrous, non-zero sum, infinite game kind of cultural evolution dynamic that, that was empowered by this, this tech layer that, that you're alluding to here. And, you know, and, and the last thing I'll say about this was that in the sequel to that novel, uh, Glasshouse, 
Strauss also points to a similar kind of collapse back to the human scale because that society 600 years hence has become, you know, like people are more or less guaranteed immortality because they've, they've been, you know, digitized and can be, you know, basically respawned whenever their physical form is destroyed. But the consequence is that even though we've somehow managed to defeat what we think of as physical death, that people moving through the router network that connects these these you know these spatially dislocated planetary systems in this in this world basically anytime you move through the router system you risk being hacked and coming out a different person on the other side so wars are no longer fought by m- murdering people's physical forms but by converting them unbeknownst to them and so people are pulling people are are systematically pulling out of this supposed technological golden age and returning to a world in which they are going to age and die. And I think that, you know, there is, there is, you know, these, these two counter forces need to be presented as, as a, you know, as a kind of a negative feedbacks that, you know, we, we keep seeking this sort of endogenous information production thing, but then it there, you know, it's, it's not indefinite, you know, like when, I'm, this is an argument I've been having with Bobby Azarian for years about, you know, his his, you know, building on David Deutsch and this notion that that this kind of process is going to go on indefinitely. And it's like, well, no, because at some point the reach exceeds the grasp, and that was exactly the point made to John Hammond in Jurassic Park was that like at some point you've created a system that that's unmanageably complex. And so, you know, you seek to return back to, you know, something more manageable from whence you came. So how, how this all relates, I'm not really sure. Well, you, you hit a bunch of things there. Let me, let me just respond, right? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. You know, first, I think one of the things that's, you know, I think we're strongly in agreement on is that intelligence, you know, we have to have rules of thumb, right? We have to you know, know what a chair is. In fact, I've uh, been trying to get the idea out into the AGI world, right? Do a little bit of helping out from time to time that perhaps the human way to get to AGI, at least barely, right? I like to say we're, we're the stupidest possible general intelligence, right? So is through heuristic induction principally, right? Rules of thumb. You know, we couldn't get through the day without lots and lots of rules of thumb. And it is funny you mentioned, I'm going to not even tell the name of it, but there's one particular psychedelic drug I used to be a fan of in my bad, bad old days, where if you were driving a car, which you shouldn't have been doing, you had to pay total time and attention to every single move you made. And if you <laughs> did so, you could drive brilliantly. But if you talked to the person in the seat next to you, you'd end up in somebody's front yard. And it was quite an interesting and weird experience, to say the least. So heuristic induction is certainly something that we use, and it's not entirely clear yet well, it, I think it is pretty clear that things like large language models don't have that concept. And probably to actually get to general intelligence, there'll have to be some other parts of the architecture that do do something like heuristic induction. Though the LLMs may well serve a, as a piece part for finding them. Next, you talked about you know sort of the unsatisfaction of all these amorphous spread around the world conversations and what I, I've long said is that the way to, to make that work better is to combine those weak links with strong links, 
right? And to build networks at the Dunbar number or up two or three X the Dunbar number that include a strong mixture of strong links and, and weak links. And by strong links, I used to mean face-to-face. And I still think that face-to-face is by far the best way to build strong links. Uh, I mean, I think back of the intense face-to-face sessions I've had with people over the over the years, and I know those people way better than anybody else, right? Even if it was only for a weekend, as long as it was an in- intense enough weekend. While weak links, on the other hand, are inexpensive to maintain and can communicate low-dimensional information at low cost and high speed. And so somehow combining the two, and now today, you know, since things like Zoom became ubiquitous, I have found you can build stronger links with things like Zoom than you can with things like Twitter or Slack. And so, you know, that's I think that's worth thinking about. And we'll certainly have much more immersive ways to interact virtually as well. And so think of the architecture of weak links and strong links when you're thinking about these things. Next, you gave the this, you know, the description of, you know, bias. You know, you're in a dark alley, right? You know. There's generally speaking some signal in most of these biases, right? Uh, some there's not, but many there is. And, you know, if you think about them as Bayesian priors, you may not be too far off off the whack, and, but it's important to update your, your prior based on experience and what you learn. But on the other hand, to pretend that there's no information at all in these signals is kind of goofy, frankly. And the people who claim that that they don't are in the main lying, uh, in, in my perspective. With respect to the Dunbar number, this opens up, I think, you know, to my mind, still about the richest insight yet from the Game B movement and thinking is that what we're missing in the current world is a mesoscale for most of us. I mean, some people still have it. They live in certain kinds of neighborhoods in certain places, but that's where the nexus of your life and your support and your security is from a group of, you know, 150, 300, 100, something in that range of people who you live with face-to-face and have high-dimensional interactions with. And if we look at look back in history, most humans live that way until about 1870. Even in the United States, in 1870, majority of people were still living on a farm in a rural community where they knew the people, multiple generational uh, reaction, uh, interactions. Since then, however, particularly in the West, but now throughout the world, we've been trading in the mesoscale, these rich, higher, high dimensionality provisioning networks of security and embeddedness, et cetera, with two cold transactional systems, one called the market and the other called the government. And that strikes me and many of the Game B people as one of the fundamental things that we need to concentrate on rebuilding is a live mesoscale but something that's more permeable and more mobile than the old small village. You know, my mother grew up in a small town and hated it, left as soon as she could when she turned 16 and said, oh yeah, a bunch of, you know, narrow-minded, stupid-ass people. So, you know, you need to have some provision for people to move between them and, you know, fertilization and a mixture of diversity and coherence, getting that balance right is going to be interesting. But I do think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to rethink, you know, how we organize the nexus of our security and our embeddedness. I think that's, uh, you know, really, really interesting. And just to, as a final aside, I happened to meet Gordon Bell once at SFI, actually, and had a nice chat with him. And he was the father of the Vax computer at Digital. 
which I actually used in my first two startups. It, it was the best damn computer there ever was. I still say I've never seen a better computer than the DECVAX and the VMS uh, operating system. And I told Gordon so, and he kind of very shyly chuckled a little bit. And that was kind of fun. So anyway, back to you, Michael. Oh, yeah. And, you know, just <laughs> to talk about this resurrection or, or restoration of the mesoscale. Yeah, I think about this all the time. And, you know, on both of my podcasts, I... I I reference a lot this article that was written for Vox EU by Wendy Carlin and Sam Bowles back at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020 about the coming battle for the COVID-19 narrative, which pointed to precisely this thing. You know, they, they created a triangular plot of state power, market power, and on the, the third axis, something that most of us do, you know, the, the, the colonization of our minds by these economies of scale and the convenience that they, at least for a long time, seemed to provide us. This third thing, which is the civil society, right? The neighborhoods, the guilds, the mutual aid networks, like the kind that, uh, you know, in Bed-Stuy, uh, Bed Brooklyn, that my cousin, uh, Samantha Garfield, was volunteering with uh, at the beginning of the pandemic for a while. And you know the the autonomous zone that sprung up in Seattle during the George Floyd and Breonna Parker protests, and you know you look at the the way that you know as someone with two small kids living hundreds of miles away from the nearest blood relationships that I have or, or my wife has in our family, you know this the sort of go west young man mythos of American car culture and, you know, manifest destiny and, you know, westward expansion, et cetera, has undermined itself now to the point where, you know, the pain of living even in the suburbs of a, a relatively small city like Santa Fe is that, you know, people, it's, it's clear that people don't really know how to forge relationships with their neighbors anymore. You know, that we, that we've become so dependent on these, you know, this, the state and the market for, our our sustenance for our entertainment, et cetera, that you know we, we people have lost the ability to grow their own food, and so we have the you know the all of the benefits of the city as a social reactor, but these people are living in food deserts where you know if, if there is a collapse of the supply chains more pronounced than what we saw during you know the COVID pandemic, then all of those benefits evaporate, right? And, you know, I, I loved and one of the big inspirations for Future Fossils podcast was Doug Rushkoff's work and in particular his book, Present Shock. And Doug, you know, in his his promotion of this notion of uh, team human has, has talked a lot about how it used to be the case that, you know, growing up in New York, that there was one person with a grill and that you'd have block parties and like everybody would get together and, you know, they'd, you'd, you'd share food, you know, you'd have, you know, everyone would be updating each other on what they have and what they need. And, you know, this really natural sort of, you know, neighborhood scale kind of community of mutual support. And at some point, all of us got sold on this idea. Like I had an argument with my wife about how, you know, we have people with leaf blowers on three sides of us and we don't need our own leaf blower, you know, but we've all been sort of sold into this idea that, that everyone has to have one of everything or two of everything in their house. And, you know, the, the, the material costs of this are insane. You know, this is why as of like 10 or 15 years ago, and I'm sure it's worse now that the American standard of living would have required nine planet earths in order to sustain it. So, you know, this, and there's the other level too, which you alluded to in the last comment that you made, 
which is the uh, you know James C. Scott seeing like a state issue, right? Which is that the the platform of state and market level computation is coarse graining information at the human scale. And so this is another reason why, in spite of all of the benefits conferred by living in in society, that these there's an inherent tension between the individual and the institution. And David and I talked about this in episode 106, where it's like simply due to the virtue, like simply due to the social contract that we create with one another, that in a way, you know, being members of the society is the primary and and most impactful relationship we have, and it supersedes the relationships that we have with one another, and renders each of us basically, you know, numbered individuals rather than than you know we we just become sort of barcodes in this this bigger thing in the way that we as complex organisms do not relate to our individual cells as as you know they're 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 fungible right and so there's something that's lost in in our our dignity as modern agents in the profusion of this stuff i want to point to cosmos shalizi whose essay on his blog the singularity in our past light cone i just want to read a, a little bit from here which he says I mean, this alludes to a lot that we were just discussing. He says, the singularity has happened. We call it the industrial revolution of the long 19th century. It was over by the close of 1918. Exponential yet basically unpredictable growth of technology rendering long-term extrapolation impossible even when attempted by geniuses? Check. Massive, profoundly disorienting transformation in the life of humanity extending to our ecology, mentality, and social organization? Check. Annihilation of the age-old constraints of space and time? Check. Embrace the fusion of humanity and machines. Check. And so this 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 last piece about the annihilation of the age old constraints of space and time is where I'd like to steer this conversation with you because this is like one of the primary themes that has been coming up for me since reading Present Shock and and really you know in my writing about Jurassic Park, which is that the you know I, and Westworld is another work of Michael Crichton's that alludes to this and 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 so does Sphere. You know, like all three of these books deal with the the way that in the pressure to create ever more comprehensive computational architectures as these these new institutional layers emerge demands more and more of us that we 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 lead into a a, a breakdown of a clear differentiation between m- moments in time and and also locations in space. And so to your, you know, this is where like, you know, the future is one in which dinosaurs exist, right? Like the, the and and humans are, you know, we 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 it erodes the narrative of progress. And so, you know, I think about this again with respect to the tension, you know, when I had the members of the Cabin Dow on future fossils and they're one group that is working on this, this, you know, what, you know, I think it was Naval that, you know, talked about the network state, you know, and they're trying to come up with these new human scale governance platforms that exist in an, in a kind of a networked way and, and are layered kind of orthogonally with geographic polities. You know, Bill Thompson talked about moving beyond the geographic polity into the noetic polity with something like religion is a community that's that's inhabited by people that are distributed across space and time and how that how that kind of noetic polity interacts with 
and conflicts with geographic polities, I think is going to be one of the biggest questions of our century, right? It's like- Yeah, indeed. Let, let's talk about that one. I, I got go some there, def- yeah. yeah. I got definitely have some thoughts on, on that, which is that for at least the last 10 years, I've heard a lot of people saying, oh, the state's obsolete. It's not going to exist. There will all be multi-polycentric in our relationships. We'll be citizens in multiple ways in multiple places. And I go, yes, but- <laughs> Control of the ground still matters, right? And uh-huh. I give a very simple analogy. Let's say we have a Dunbarish sized neighborhood. Will we allow drinking in public or not? Right? It affects the quality of life in in both either way. I mean, there's positives and negatives to how you set that switch, and I can argue for either side of this one. That's one of the reasons I like it so much. And the determination of whether in this little neighborhood, you should allow public alcohol consumption should not be made by anybody outside that neighborhood. doesn't affect anybody else. And they have the full authority to understand the trade-offs, both pro and con. And of course, the same, the same is true in a kind of a sensible space to other kinds of disturbances of the peace or, you know, should people be allowed to have sex in public, right? You can go on and on and on. And so that the the ground layer is qualitatively different than the other layers. And failure to understand that strikes me as a sign of some something like autism, not really understanding what life is actually about. And yes, I'm a person who's heavily engaged in the virtual, probably more so than most, certainly more so than most of my age, right? I'm an old son of a bitch, right? But I'm highly engaged in many online communities, but I also pay a lot of attention to the ground. And to think that the ground is going away, wrong. Now, I did like Balaji in his network state, his thinking that, you know, maybe we start virtually, but we eventually go and get land. He, he, you know, he was arguing both sides of it, but at least he did say eventually we have to uh, have control of the base of the base layer. And, you know, it's real easy for people out on the cutting edge to somehow think that it's all going to be all virtual all the time. But I suggest you, you know, go to Walmart someplace in Mississippi. and I think you'll be uh, disillusioned of that pretty quickly. <laughs> and, and also just get the hell away from your computer and go out and just deal with people. It makes a whole bunch, it makes a whole bunch of sense. You know, and, and I may also react to the idea of suburbanites, you know, totally isolated in their in their little houses and everybody having three leaf blowers and all that. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm older than Doug Rushkoff by about seven or eight years, I think. And I was able able to grow up in a place in a post-World War II suburbia that was very much unlike that. The example I love to give was these mothers who had all come from somewhere else. This was outside of DC in the in a, a close-in burb where a, a farm had recently been converted into a subdivision. People from all over the East Coast did not know each other at all. Less than half of them were high school graduates. Essentially, none of them were college graduates. And yet, they were able to build cultural capital and build commons very quickly. One of the things they built was the babysitting club. Nobody had any money. They couldn't afford to pay anybody for babysitting, but they'd all like to go out on dates with their husbands or with their boyfriends, I suppose. But And so they quickly built this group where they had a, they had a ledger in a bound book. And if you, know, you gave three hours worth of babysitting, you got plus three in the book. If somebody consumed three hours, it was minus three. You kept the ledger and once a month there was a report. And these, these folks were able to build that commons and it worked great because they still knew how to 
deal with each other in a human way and assess who was who was too dangerous to let in the babysitting club, right? Clearly, mm-hmm. it's a membrane, a semi-permeable membrane, like we talk about in Game B a lot. And there were some women who were not invited to join the babysitting club. They were not considered to be sound, but most women were. That same neighborhood, again, keep in mind, essentially no college grads, less than 50% high school graduates. We also built a community swimming pool. Our community was growing so fast that the county couldn't build any infrastructure to speak of. They could barely keep up building schools. And so a number of the fathers this time came together, established a not-for-profit corporation, sold, I think it was 300 memberships, and built a very nice community pool, which still exists to this day, amazingly enough. And self-governed, self-run, and the same was true of our local sports teams. You know, we had a, a boys club that was emergent and not affiliated with any government entity. This was before the rec departments had any money. And they cut deals with the schools to play a ball on their school fields and all. And you know, parent, the, the parents of my parents' generation, these were the World War II G.I. Joe generation, they still knew how to do that, right? Boomers considerably less so, but then the next generations afterwards, less and less and less so in the, in the physical world. And this seems to me a major mistake of our civilization is to have given up on the skill of dealing naturally and organically with each other at this ground level and building commons. You know, as we've been thinking hard about what is game B really, it, it, at one level, you can say it's creating semi-permeable membranes and creating commons inside of them. And I think this is a hugely important thing that everything about our current society is driving in the opposite direction towards ever more atomization, ever more anonymity, ever more government and ever more market. Uh, When in reality, we ought to be finding other ways to live. And that's not to say the market is bad. The market's one of the greatest inventions of the human mind. But But to put the the market over everything is nuts. And we will always need governance, but the idea that you know a government of 350 million people whose headquarters is a thousand miles away should be making any determination about what you do in your local community strikes me as nuts and what in which our ancestors would not have tolerated in a moment, right? That's not how humans have historically lived. Yeah, it's complicated to say the least. And you know, I, I want to just tether a few more documents to this this particular inquiry, one of which is John Perry Barlow's Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. Which, <laughs> you know, look, looking back now at the, you know, at the kind of the techno-optimism of this document, even Barlow himself admits that this was a, a lunacy, you know, just yeah. like high on new technology. Yeah, I was on the well at the time, and that thing was written on the well, right? And that was part of that. Uh, Kevin Kelly, he was part of that circle. You know, Mitch Kapoor, a bunch of other folks, and we were all drinking the bathwater big time at that point. I'll confess, I was maybe a little more skeptical than some, but not skeptical enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and, and it's it's fair because you have this thing that you know was just as true of you know uh, Marconi and the evolution of the the radio. And this thing that, you know, anytime a new communications platform emerges, there is this sort of zealotry with which people approach it as a, as a tool for emancipation before it's co-opted by accelerationist capital, you know, forces, right? And so, again, you know, like I, when I was a Google Glass Explorer and I was uh, talking with 
John Perry Barlow at my friend's music festival, Rootwire in, in Ohio. I, there's a video you can find of, of an, an inter, a, a micro interview I did with, with John through Google Glass where he says, you know, I remember wanting this thing. He's talking to the glass. He's saying, I remember wanting you once upon a time. And now I, I, it's like, now I don't want anything less than you, you know, because you like with age comes the, the ability to reflect on the way that these, these things emerge and are successively co-opted, you know? So for me, the, the, the question of how tech platforms lead to renegotiations of this, this tension between, you know, localized self-determination and a kind of like fascistic uh, control is really interesting. So another piece I want to stack on this is John Danaher's Transhumanism and Algocracy podcast. It, when, in 2019, he interviewed Erica Neely of Ohio Northern University, and they were talking about augmented reality and the ethics whereby property rights and, and the problems that arise in blending virtual and physical reality create issues where people feel like they should be able to tag geolocated items in AR that are overlaid with physical spaces, right? So like this issue of AR graffiti and, you know, to whom does the, the, the uh, virtual double of that particular, you know, public monument, right? Like, you know, the, the uh, obelisk that used to exist downtown, in Santa Fe. So like, should anyone be able to, to, to tag that with graffiti metadata or, you know, is that part of a digital commons or is that something that exists as, you know, something that is truly, you know, like that is uh, forever a part of the actual object that is a, you know, private property of some kind of institution. And then, you know, the last, the last piece is, you know, going back to my work on these kinds of investigations that were precipitated through interacting with Google Glass, I wrote a, a series called The Evolution of Surveillance. And in it, I was thinking about, you know, to go back to Jurassic Park, the the AR game Jurassic World Alive, which is kind of a Pokemon Go style game where you're traveling through your city and collecting dinosaurs that exist as, as virtual objects in space. That game, which was developed by Ludia and, you know, Pokemon Go, which was developed by uh, Niantic Labs, which received, like, Niantic exists courtesy of CIA funding. And so, you know, the question of why people were so interested in, you know, how to get virtual objects on a map to to steer collective human physical space behavior is a really interesting one. You know, this is another piece explored in the work of Charles Strauss through his novel Halting State. So you have these issues where like you create a rare Pokemon or dinosaur that exists downtown in some city, and then you can motivate everyone to try and like cluster a busy traffic intersection and, you know, and block and divert physical traffic through that intersection. And so these questions of like, well, who is actually placing these things on the map? Supposedly they're algorithmically generated and like, you know, you're, you know, you're, you know, Charmander or whatever is like just... But in, you know, in reality, again, you get into this sort of this sort of Lovecraftian paranoid premise that this allows occluded actors in the state or market spaces to use us in the way that Jaron Lanier talked about, you know, reasons to get rid of your social media profiles, to, to use people as the terminal nodes of some sort of hyper object of, of social behavioral control. And so, you know, like, what would you do if you had access to the Jurassic World Alive or Pokemon Go map? Well, you could steer, you know, you could, you could interfere with the, you know, the presidential 
limousine, you know, and prevent it from getting to the airport on time or place it in the, in the path of a sniper and these kinds of things. And so, you know, the question of who actually gets to control the metadata that, that is overlaid with physical space becomes one of, you know, extreme importance. And it's not just a sort of video game separated from, you know, the consequences of our physical lives. And this is why, you know, this is, this is like why I think it's so important for people to understand the influence of science fiction and imagination in, in this technologically empowered age and why it is that, you know, the, the transition in entertainment media from analog physical effects to digital effects allows for a kind of penetration of our physical lives with the, you know, the, uh, the virtual objects of our imagination such that this story, Jurassic Park, which is about computationally resurrected prehistoric creatures is actually a parable about the way that those exact same computer technologies have created a space where the so-called velociraptors have escaped the island. And now we have to live with, you know, the, the transgressions of, you know, zoonotic illnesses and of our, our language models having escaped the, the reserve and now, you know, are something that we have to live with and have to face the consequences of a new sort of symbiotic encounter with. Yeah, this goes back to your first point, that we now live in this extraordinarily abstract infosphere, right, mm -hmm. that includes things like augmented reality overlays. And you know, I've chatted a fair bit with a local company called Rain Crow Studios, which builds uh, real-world games. Covens, I think, is their most well-known one. they got a new one about to come out called Vampire Capitalists, where they, again, the, the games get people out all over the street and all this. And it is a very interesting question, and one in which our legal system has no opinion about at this point, right? <laughs> in the same way, our, I would argue, at least, our, our, legal, our legal system has no opinion well, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but LLMs and what is that all about with respect to copyright? I'd love to get your insight on that. Uh, but oh, this, yeah, but this idea of you know, what property rights does one have? You know, let's say, or personal rights, even. You know, someone annotates the geolocation of your house. Go, what a lousy, ugly house this is! What idiot built this? Right, <laughs> and you know that's trivial to, to build today, so that it at least shows up on somebody's phone. And in a in a few years, assuming somebody ever gets the AR goggles right, which we'll see, then there will be at least some people walking around with those things, looking at these annotations on people's houses. Do you have any rights against that? I don't know. It's an interesting, damn interesting question. And at the current law is completely silent on that question. So, so let, let's branch off that because I, I, this is something I did write in my notes. As a, as a musician, as an artist, as a podcaster, you're a creator of intellectual property. And these generative models are, have gone around scooping up, sometimes copyrighted, sometimes not, properties. And they do, and unlike what some people think, these models do not actually have the text of the stuff that they have processed in them. What they have is a gigantic matrix of numbers that that have distilled some attributes of which each individual component piece had some piece in adjusting millions, perhaps billions of numbers in a very small, tiny little way. So it's in some sense extracted the soul from these artifacts, right? As opposed to actually copying the artifacts themselves. And so that I would argue, as someone who's been in IP intensive businesses and studied IP law, I do not think that copyright holders will have a leg to stand on on 
saying that it's a infringement to extract the numeric oddities of their of their artifacts and then create new artifacts. Prop- the, the argument's less clear on trademark, actually, but I think on copyright, it's pretty clear. And if we do want to provide any kind of protection there, uh, it's going to have to be through new legal structures and new ways to think about the world or the alternative, and I don't see how we get this collective collective action to have, people have to create rights-based sets of corpuses to train these things that produce as good or better than, than the scoop it up from the web. And that may not actually be possible. As a person who's played in these spaces and understands the technology probably better than your average musician, what do you think about all this? Uh, generative AI and intellectual property. Well, this is probably the principal concern that I have right now. And I'm, I'm like really trying to press this conversation as much as possible. So I'm glad you brought it up. You know, I was, I just recently applied for a fellowship with, you know, O'Shaughnessy Ventures, right. And, and have been grateful enough to engage in kind of intermittent conversation with Peter Gabriel's business manager, Mike Large about this stuff. And I pointed him recently to Holly Herndon's work to, you know, Holly's another musician that's gotten really, really far ahead of the, the curve of people's thinking on this stuff and is trying to create a, a platform with her partner, Matt Dryhurst, to help identify when, you know, this have I been trained thing, you know, ha- has your work shown up in the training set for, you know, the stability models or, or you know, these other things. And yet I, I agree with you that on the one hand, this satisfies the concerns that artists living within a contemporary copyrights paradigm have about the the intellectual property and the that they've generated and the you know the economic value that's supposedly attached to it you know this you know a, a, is my stuff just being appropriated in the way that you know the genetic information of Henrietta Lacks was was appropriated and, and you know her her family's never going to get paid for that or the Holly gives the example of the Amen break, which is the most sampled piece of music in in the entire history of music. And yet, you know, the, the guy, I, I can't remember his name right now, but that guy never received a dime for being the most sampled musician of all time. But, you know, to me, this points, you know, uh, another EFF member, Corey Doctorow, wrote a, a great piece for Locust Magazine a few years ago about this, this fraudulent notion that economic value is created ex nihilo by the refinement of you know wild resources you know that this the terra nullius principle where you know we we make econ- value out of out of nothing right by interacting with the you know the wild resources and he says that basically this is as ridiculous as suggesting you know that when european settlers came to north america that that they were interacting with a landscape that had not already been stewarded by wildcrafting indigenous agricultural practices for thousands and thousands of years. Like they didn't even realize they were looking at something that was in an, a, a, a cultural artifact. They saw it as wild. And so, you know, when I, when I think about the, the way that artists that are afraid of these language models appropriating their work are engaging with this issue. I think that what they're really, you know, these people that want Disney to fight stability AI and win a copyright case about this are, are not thinking clearly because they're saying that somehow cultural value started with their refinement of 
of, of something that they created intellectual property from scratch. And they're asking the, the automated royalty payment system to start with them rather than to reach back into hundreds and hundreds of, you know, thousands of years of cultural inheritance and remixing. You know, it's the same issue with likeness rights, right? Like, you know, you don't want your image, like you were saying earlier about, you know, graffiti tagged to your, your residential properties. You don't want your image to completely spin out of your control and be used in, you know, pornography and deep fakes or whatever. At the same time, why does your likeness belong to you? Your likeness was inherited from your parents and they, they inherited that gene, that DNA from their parents. And so I think this is a really profoundly sticky and complex question because ultimately what we're saying is that uh, we owe the past nothing, but the future owes us everything. Yeah, I love this. Uh, this is very. This is a very nice, sharp lens, right? Because another way I think about it is every one of us who's a creator has been able to participate in our creation because we've been embedded in a commons that's been built up over 300,000 years, right? You know, how, do I owe royalty on my, uh, my essays? Do I owe royalties to Chaucer because he invented Middle <laughs> English, right? You say, without Chaucer, rut, your damn articles would, uh, you couldn't write them. That seems crazy. And and yet, this is sui generis. This is something new. So we as a society have to come to some thoughts, it's, you know, because the old law, I don't believe will help the artists. I don't think it will. And certainly, and, and I will also say as a practical matter, there's too much to be gained by too many rich people for it to, for it to fall their way, I suspect. Even with the mouse on their side, the artists are going to lose, I, I do believe. But it doesn't mean we can't come to some some kind of consensus. And, and perhaps something smarter is, again, come back to this idea of commons. Suppose we built a, and I know somebody working on this or about to start working on it, built a corpus of all rights agreed and contributed material that becomes a commons and that they together will get dividends from the licensing licensing of these things. And, and yet it still has the ability for all of humanity very inexpensively to have access to all this creative stuff. You know, that plays in closely to a thought experiment of mine. I said, if I were uh, president of the United States, goddamn, well, actually better king of the United States, who the fuck wants to deal with <laughs> Congress assholes. If I was the king, one of the things I would do is limit music copyrights to 10 years and for one reason, so that when you're 25, you can you can grab the music from when you were 15 to put into videos for free. So, you know, you, you want to put a Rolling Stones song in when, you know, say when I was 15, Rolling Stones, the Beatles, all that was the shit. By the time you turn 25, you're, it's available uh, for you to use. And in reality, you know, you know artists, I know artists, I know writers, none of them in their calculus pay, put much value in, into their act of creation on what their thing would be worth in 10 years, right? It's and a very, 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 very tiny few luck out and turn into a perpetuity, but it's less than a tenth of 1% of all artists. So why in the world should we be re rewarding the tenth of 1% lottery ticket winners when we could have been creating a commons for everybody to use in their work? And I think some thinking like that, some level of rights, uh, but into a pool that's priced very inexpensively and that the economic rights dissipate relatively rapidly might might be a framework for thinking this thing through. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, the, you know, the, the issue of the commons is the crux of this. I, I, 
I love and frequently reference Lewis Hyde's book, Common as Error, which is about the the history of intellectual property in, in Europe and the United States and the way that the, our treatment of intellectual property has, you know, patents and copyright in particular, has diverged rather profoundly from the way that they were originally articulated by the founding fathers of the United States. You know, uh, he calls Benjamin Franklin our, you know, the founding pirate. Because at the time, you know, the, the the pamphleteering that was that was done by these people, what existed in a framework where people were very hesitant to take personal credit for the ideas that they were disseminating. They, you know, they saw the work of cultural creation as as you know something that belonged to everybody and came from everybody. And so, you know, when when Hyatt identifies three successive enclosures of the the commons, you know, he, he points to first. The enclosure of physical space, you know, the, the 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 woods that people were hunting in now belongs to the king. He determines who gets the you know to hunt there. Then the intellectual commons, and then the commons of futurity. You know, where we have this issue now, where you know a, a huge portion of the of the human genome has been patented by Monsanto with no understanding of what it's actually good for. It's speculative patenting, right? And so I you know I want to reference a a riff on a recent blog by Are You Serious at Mindplex about the relationship between cultural appropriation and and sampling and and this language model problem that we're facing now, where, you know, Are You points to the fact that, as he puts it, getting paid defines one as a capital A artist or capital W writer, because otherwise everybody does the same thing that you do. And, you know, my point is that with, with that is that isn't this the problem? right? I would rather live in a society where everyone participates in meaningful creative contributions to a rich and colorful infinite game of culture. You know, some slaves got marginally better treatment by their overlords to keep the slaves divided against each other. And the privilege of getting paid poorly to make art should not be the determining factor in our collective decisions about how to handle the future of IP law when the very factors forcing this discussion are about to reshape our economy in even deeper and more profound ways. So like defending the right to make a horrible living on cultural creation is actually occluding us from being able to maintain a commons where that's going to benefit us. It's, it's actually undermining our ability to act as good ancestors. And so, you know, I would think, you know, calling back to Bucky Fuller and his point that jobs are a specious notion, I think this whole conversation is forcing a much deeper investigation into how it is that people should be capable of making, you know, a subsistence living. And, I, you know, when I had Brian Arthur on the show, on complexity back in the day, you know, we, we talked about his 2017 McKinsey essay on the, looking at, you know, Keynes and his 1930 paper, the, you know, the, the economic prospects for our grandchildren. And yeah, we'd be working 15 hours a week by 19, right. yeah, 1975 or something. Right? right. You know, so Arthur says, you know, the reason that this hasn't happened is because the, you know, the, the, the automation is only amplifying, a, you know, a system where, the the point is to increase our productivity, but it's it's in a system that's condensing wealth to the highest layers of of the you know the economic strata, and that you know Arthur sees what's needed in a global economy as something like a heart, like active redistribution of wealth, and so that's the system that you're talking about. You know the system where people are are you know in the capillaries of a global economy are getting pumped blood. They're not being expected to manufacture blood at every terminal node of the system. And so, yeah, like 
how do we, you know, how do we come up with a more creative vision of the economy? People forget, you know, when you're talking about the mouse, the mouse itself was a stolen piece of IP. It was created by Ub Iwerks and then he was ripped off by his, his partner, Walt Disney, you know? So is that really the world that we want to foist on our kids? Like in my opinion, absolutely not. Yeah. The, yeah. Okay, good. That's very interesting. Yeah, the it's been a pet peeve of mine, and of course, Disney being one of the worst malfactors, when amazingly, the, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the extension of copyright for existing works, which is totally unconstitutional, because you know, I'm going to read this right out of the Constitution. Congress shall have the power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive rights to their respective writings and discoveries. Right, it's just to produce, promote the progress. So, how the hell can extending the copyright on existing works promote the progress of anything? It can't. It was just a pure goddamn hijack by politically well-connected people. And and as you and I both know, those who make more than anything after the first ten years is de minimis, and it's all about the few giant winners of the lottery ticket who are you know fighting for their own, essentially for their own payoffs. Despicable, the classic example of how the money power has corrupted our politics. Totally. Yep. Now, as to the bigger question of what does a new economy look like, and I'm I'm with Brian there. Interestingly, Brian was my office mate the first year I was at the Santa Fe Institute when I was a researcher there. We had some very interesting conversations. It's Brian Arthur, and he's been on my podcast too. As we had a very good conversation about his book about technology, technology its nature, I think it was called, and and what that new economy looks like. I think we're not sure yet. Uh, but that's, that's something that we certainly need to do if humanity is going to make it through the 21st century intact. Today, we have a system where the short loop of short-term, up to three-year, money-on-money return drives everything, and the meta game of asset allocation and financial management also scored on money-on-money return on even shorter cycles than three years. And that machine demands exponential growth and is very happy to drive civilization off the cliff, right? And if we continue to collapse all value into that single number, we're not going to escape the meta crisis. Ma nature bats last and she will win, right? Uh, I personally don't believe it's the end of humanity, but it may well be the end of the deep technological stack for at least a few hundred years. And if we're going to avoid that, we're going to have to find a way to not be on this ever-increasing exponential growth. We're going to have to find a way to meta-stability. And the current institutions just do not support it. You know, even down at the level of how our mon- monetary system works. You know, people have heard me rant about money countless times. There's, I have a good YouTube called Dividend Money that lays out an alternative. But there's everything about our system is designed to force this, this more, more, more. Why are there 200 varieties of shampoo at Walgreens, right? No good reason. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just out of control and it's nuts. On the other hand, we also know that central planning, a la the Soviet Union, doesn't work either and leads to even more horror. So, you know, I think one of the great challenges for those of us in the liminal web is to think, start to become serious about thinking about what metastable economics actually looks like. And I know the Santa Fe Institute is engaged with a consortium of other scientific institutions to begin some of that work over the next few years. uh, well-funded effort. And I look very much forward to seeing what comes out of that. I would, I would put that as, you know, near the top of the things that 
people need to figure out and solve over the next 10 or 20 years if we're going to make it through this through this century. And of course, we also have very broken political institutions, particularly in the United States. You know, think about the absolute idiocy of this shit show around the debt ceiling, right? Or think about the absolute idiocy that we have a hack politician, mediocre politician, who will be 82 years old a couple of weeks after election day versus the, you know, the king of liars, narcissism, and pussy grabbing. You know, what kind of society throws those two up as the, the best and the brightest? You know, our, inst- our political institutions are so broken, it's absolutely ridiculous. So yeah, we have some serious social operating system re-engineering here to do if we're going to make it in the years ahead. Totally. And, you know, again, I think the the defining sort of central thesis that I, I feel like helping people grasp in, in my own career, you know, coming out of evolutionary biology and, and paleontology and, you know, paleoecology, and then working in you know, the world of entertainment and, you know, festival culture, and then coming into complex systems and science communication. You know, I, I, I have an angle on this, you know, thinking about, you know, being a technological early adopter and guinea pig and, you know, everything in the first essay collection that I'm, I'm going to make as an ebook available to my Substack and Patreon supporters here soon called how to live in the future. It's, it's a, it's a book about, how to think through the lens of natural history at the evolution of technology in a way kind of like what Kevin Kelly has been doing in his work, you know, to think about all of, you know, technology as something that exists as an extension of the biosphere and noosphere, just as, as everything else does, eroding the, the boundary between the, the dynamics and, and, you know, characteristics of living and, and non quote unquote living and non-living systems, challenging that, that boundary conceptually. And so where that puts us is in understanding the ways in which what we're living through now is, you know, different, qualitatively different from what has come before on this planet, but also continuous with, you know, so that we're not stranded and desperate in our attempts to make sense of, you know, the, the maturation of, of the, the internet as something that is completely unprecedented in biosphere, right? And so when I had uh, Ming Lu, SFI postdoc Ming Lu on complexity, I think it was episode 80, he studies the evolution of mycorrhizal affiliations, you know, the, between plants Trees, and fungi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and he says, you know, look, if you, if you look back at, you know, once upon a time, you know, a significant amount of the, the petrochemical deposits on Earth are due to the fact that fungi had not yet figured out a way to metabolize wood, Right, so the the whole surface of the the planet was co- like the 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 uh, terrestrial ecosystems of the planet were covered with fallen logs that no one had found a way to make use of, and this was essentially an industrial pollution catastrophe. And you know, much as earlier in the world, you know, we we the earliest photosynthetic microbes flooded the atmosphere with oxygen, which it was at the time was a, a, a toxic chemical. And it took the evolution of the glycolytic metabolism to metabolize atmospheric oxygen before it destroyed everything in the world. And then later it took the evolution of the digestion of lignin to prevent another catastrophe where, you know, so we're, we're here again. And in some ways, you know, the, the climate disaster that we're living through right now is just the latest fold in this ongoing iterative story whereby the you know the industrial pollution 
processes are closed. I've heard Daniel Schmachtenberger talk about this a lot in terms of, you know, creating a circular economies. You got Kate Rayworth and the donut economy, right, right. you know, this kind of thing. And so this is where we are. You know, this is, you know, looking forward, this question of how to reconcile the demands of the economy to continue growing indefinitely with the real physical constraints of our planet, I think is resolved by the the innovation of metabolisms that close these material informational and, and energetic loops. And so it's really just about, you know, how do we keep this thing, you know, the question of how do we keep this thing from running off the rails has everything to do with what, you know, my, I've, I've, been following the work of Charles Eisenstein for a long time and his in his book The Ascent of Humanity he suggests that early capitalism and also you know what we're calling late stage capitalism were like weeds growing in an empty parking lot and that at some point that first stage of ecological succession matures to the point where the soil has been prepared for trees and then trees fall over and they create logs that allow for the growth of new new trees and and new mushrooms and so on and we haven't figured that out at the level of of a planet scale economy yet. The question of how do we mulch all of this economic production so that its decay becomes something that can be reutilized. And so, you know, when you're talking about currency design, the last thing I'll say about this is the, the architect of the Euro, uh, Bernard Latier, you know, suggested that the, the, where the rubber hits the road, as far as our money systems are concerned, is that the entire capitalist economy depends on you know, the dividends of money that accrues value over time by being removed from circulation and that usury is essentially at the root of this problem. And that what we need is a a global economic system based on money that actually decays in value over time as it's being kept out of circulation. You know, demurrage is the answer to this problem. Yeah, my dividend money platform has a, a knob that you either make it negative or positive based on measuring the velocity of money. And there's no doubt about it that demurrage is something that we don't have in our current system that would make a huge difference, as would focusing on velocity. There's a, there's a whole lot of interesting design work there. Let's see. Let's, we got just a few minutes here before we wrap up. I want to get your thoughts on one of my early – oh, by the way, Charles Eisenstein was the guest on my most recent podcast. You can check it out at thegymrudshow.com or your favorite podcast app. Ken Stanley is an interesting guy in neuroevolution and also now in deep learning, and he wrote a very cool book on open-ended exploration, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned. Mm-hmm. And you know he makes a, an interesting argument that you know he slightly overstates it. I thought he said, but the tendency to have objectives first forces us into these hill climbers, right? And if we can relax that constraint and say, why don't we see what we can create without necessarily having an objective in mind, uh, we can produce much more interesting things. And truthfully, I've seen the ability of, of chat GPT to do these things, particularly under API control, where you get into a loop where it's essentially skyhooking itself into creating something with no objective at all. And how we add that into an, into an ecosystem of humanity, I, I'm not really quite sure, but I think it's a very interesting opportunity. You know, if we were making music, not because we thought it had a one chance in 10,000 of becoming the next Taylor Swift, but rather because we love making music with our neighbors and jamming, where, where would music go instead of it being under this money-on-money uh, money return constraint? I suspect it would be much more interesting, but I'm not sure. 
Yeah, so this is actually one of my favorite topics because I'm kind of a puer Eternus or Peter Pan character. You know, David Krakauer said I'm I'm, a, I'm an exemplar of what he calls high temperature search, which is, you know, we, we discussed that in our last conversation for complexity, uh, Alison Gopnik's work on the explore-exploit tension. And, and the, the reason why the noisy open-ended search and exploration of children is balanced ecologically, you know, why play is essential in the evolutionary process, you know, why it is that we don't just have the sort of like optimized, narrow-minded search that's more characteristic of risk-averse adult cognition. And, you know, if you look at the, again, Jurassic Park and the conversation that's been going in a really deep and interesting way in the Future Fossils Discord server about this stuff, Crichton puts this central theme in his work of the tension between the children and the adults, right? And, you know, there's a, there's a classic scene in Jurassic Park where children save the day because they know how to operate the computer systems that everyone else with any kind of computer literacy on the park has died. And so the kids end up, the kids who are systematically shut down, told to shut up, told to put away the expensive electronics through the entire story, end up, end, end up saving everyone else's lives. And I think that, you know, this speaks to this sort of economic question that you're pointing to, which is that, you know, in order to navigate the profusion of new challenges that face us in, an, in, in this explosive endogenous novelty space that, we, that we've found ourselves in, then we need to emphasize the ability to explore the space of what Stu Kaufman called the adjacent possible and really really allow this sort of childlike cognitive mode to regain a, a you know a prominence and a partnership with the efficient mode that the, the you know allow more noisy kinds of thinking and search to to come back into the process and so you know this is why it just it grieves me to hear people talk about how they don't understand the economic utility of the arts you know, why, we, we got to cut arts funding because this is just, you know, this is just a luxury or cut the funding on fundamental research because we don't, you know, we don't understand why this stuff matters. And ex that's exactly the point. That's exactly why it's important is because we don't get it. And we need to, you know, we need to make space for, you know, the, these things to eventually demonstrate some kind of fruit. But, you know, we need to, we need to accept that, you know, blue sky thinking and, and play and exploration are, are you know, just unfathomably important. And again, this is why, like, the, the challenge of being at the, the margin or at the, the growing edge of things is a persistent one because, you know, this is why, the, you know, the liminal web is liminal, right, is because the, the work of sense making is, by definition, economically illegible. So like, you know, you're, you're in a privilege point where, you know, you're, you're at the tail end of, of a career where you've already made enough value that you can pursue these things without great risk to yourself. I'm at the beginning of a career in which, you know, my greatest challenge is to remind people that this exploratory work is, is crucial to the human enterprise and the, the continuance of, you know, a, a sustainable biosphere and, and society. And, you know, so that's, you know, that's my that's my pitch for future fossils and for the, you know, the, the, the work that I'm doing and, and, you know, the conversation that I'm trying to facilitate, which is that, you know, yeah, you know, it's, it's, first of all, it's fun and, you know, exploration as a ludic enterprise, we should never lose sight of the fact that life should 
be fun on some level, right? That even in even in dire moments such as ours, that that chasing the the inherent hedonic imperative of exploration, it, there's a reason why our systems are wired to enjoy curiosity, you know, because it's it balances fear and and risk aversion. And, and, you know, and so, yeah, that's, you know, that's my answer to your, your question, I think. I love it. That's great. And it's, I think it's actually a very hopeful one because it, it lets me uh, at least very vaguely see that, you know, once we have finally figured out the problem of material abundance, or at least the material enough, there's essentially an infinity of open-ended search that humanity can go on if we all aren't raised from the time we're young, when we're no longer raised with the hustle, 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 or starve, starve, starve imperative, which has become very stark in our society today. Uh, the, the kind of human that would develop under those circumstances, I think, would be very beautiful and very interesting. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's you know, ultimately our our future is one that is more childlike and more playful than we're, you know, what we think of traditionally as sort of the, the maturation of the human species. And really where we are now as human beings, we can tell the story of our evolution as one in which we are, we are the sexually mature larva of the earliest chordates or, you know, earlier primate ancestors. You know, we, in order to live in a complex society with one another, we have maintained neuroplasticity and, you know, kind of developmental open-endedness that was lost or, un, you know, was foreclosed by our ancestors. And so, yeah, I mean, how do we, how do we balance this with the needs of maintaining, you know, focus and clarity and efficiency in society? It's an interesting question, but it's one that we're not going to resolve by discarding our childlike curiosity and our ability to explore and play together. Well, I think on that very nice, hopeful note, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you, Michael Garfield. Where can people go if they want to give you money? Oh, go to my Substack. You know, follow me there or, you know, link tr.ee slash Michael Garfield has links to, you know, my art and music. Yeah, we'll have all that stuff up on the episode page, jimrutshow.com. And give Michael money so he can continue to do this great work. <laughs> Thanks. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.